0: This is a LibriVox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Lone Star Ranger by Zane Gray, Chapter twelve. Sometime during the night Duane awoke. A stillness seemingly so thick and heavy as to have substance blanketed the black willow-break. He could not see a star, or a branch, or a tree-trunk, or even his hand before his eyes. He lay there waiting, listening, sure that he had been awakened by an unusual sound. Ordinary noises of the night in the wilderness never disturbed his rest. His faculties, like those of old fugitives and hunted creatures, had become trained to a marvelous keenness a long low breath of slow wind moaned through the willows passed away some stealthy soft-footed beast trotted by him in the darkness there was a rustling among dry leaves a fox barked lonesomely in the distance but none of these sounds had broken his slumber suddenly piercing the stillness came a bay of a bloodhound quickly Duane sat up, chilled to his marrow. The action made him aware of his crippled arm. Then came other bays, lower, more distant. Silence enfolded him again, all the more oppressive and menacing in his suspense. Bloodhounds had been put on his trail, and the leader was not far away. All his life Duane had been familiar with bloodhounds, and he knew that if the pack surrounded him in this impenetrable darkness he would be held at bay or dragged down as wolves, dragged a stag. Rising to his feet, prepared to flee as best he could, he waited to be sure of the direction he should take. The leader of the hounds broke into cry again, a deep, full-toned, ringing bay, strange, ominous, terribly significant in its power. It caused a cold sweat to ooze out all over Duane's body. He turned from it, and with his uninjured arm, outstretched to feel for the willows, he groped his way along. As it was impossible to pick out the narrow passages, he had to slip and squeeze and plunge between the yielding stems. He made such a crashing that he no longer heard the baying of the hounds. He had no hope to elude them. He meant to climb the first cottonwood that he stumbled upon in his blind flight. But it appeared he never was going to be lucky enough to run against one. Often he fell, sometimes flat, at others upheld by the willows. What made the work so hard was the fact that he had only one arm to open a clump of close-growing stems, and his feet would catch or tangle in the narrow crotches, holding him fast. He had to struggle desperately. It was as if the willows were clutching hands, his enemies, fiendishly impeding his progress. He tore his clothes on sharp branches, and his flesh suffered many a prick. But in a terrible earnestness he kept on until he brought up hard against a cottonwood tree. There he leaned and rested. He found himself as nearly exhausted as he had ever been, wet with sweat, his hands torn and burning his breast laboring, his legs stinging from innumerable bruises. While he leaned there to catch his breath, he listened for the pursuing hounds. For a long time there was no sound from them. This, however, did not deceive him into any hopefulness. There were bloodhounds that bayed often on a trail, and others that ran mostly silent. The former were more valuable to their owner, and the latter more dangerous to the fugitive. Presently Duane's ears were filled by a chorus of short, ringing yelps. The pack had found where he had slept, and now the trail was hot. Satisfied that they would soon overtake him, Duane set about climbing the cottonwood, which in his condition was difficult of ascent. It happened to be a fairly large tree with a fork about fifteen feet up, and branches thereafter in succession. Duane climbed until he got above the enshrouding belt of blackness. A pale gray mist hung above the break, and through it shone a line of dim lights. Duane decided these were bonfires made along the bluff to render his escape more difficult on that side. Away round in the direction he thought was north he imagined he saw more fires, but, as the mist was thick, he could not be sure. While he sat there pondering the matter, listening for the hounds, the mist and the gloom on one side lightened and this side he concluded was east, and meant that dawn was near. Satisfying himself on this score, he descended to the first branch of the tree. His situation now, though still critical, did not appear to be so hopeless as it had been. The hounds would soon close in on him, and he would kill them or drive them away. It was beyond the bounds of possibility that any men could have followed running hounds through that break in the night. The thing that worried Duane was the fact of the bonfires. He had gathered from the words of one of his pursuers that the break was a kind of trap, and he began to believe there was only one way out of it, and that was along the bank where he had entered, and where obviously all night long his pursuers had kept fires burning. Further conjecture on this point, however, was interrupted by a crashing in the willows and the rapid patter of feet. Underneath Duane lay a grey, foggy obscurity. He could not see the ground, nor any object but the black trunk of the tree. Sight would not be needed to tell him when the pack arrived. With a pattering rush through the willows the hounds reached the tree. And then high above crash of brush and thud of heavy paws rose a hideous clamour. Duane's pursuers far off to the south would hear that and know what it meant and at daybreak, perhaps before, they would take a short cut across the break, guided by the baying of hounds that had treed their quarry. It wanted only a few moments, however, till Duane could distinguish the vague forms of the hounds in the grey shadow below. Still he waited. He had no shots to spare, and he knew how to treat bloodhounds. Gradually the obscurity lightened, and at length Duane had good enough sight of the hounds for his purpose. His first shot killed the huge, brute leader of the pack. Then, with unerring shots, he crippled several others. That stopped the baying. Piercing howls arose. The pack took fright and fled, its course easily marked by the howls of the crippled members. Duane reloaded his gun, and, making certain all the hounds had gone, he descended to the ground and set off at a rapid pace to the northward. The mist had dissolved under a rising sun when Twain made his first halt some miles north of the scene where he had waited for the hounds. A barrier to further progress, in shape of a precipitous rocky bluff, rose sheer from the willow-break. He skirted the base of the cliff, where walking was comparatively easy, around in the direction of the river. He reached the end finally to see there was absolutely no chance to escape from the break at that corner. It took extreme labour, attended by some hazard and considerable pain to his arm, to get down where he could fill his sombrero with water. After quenching his thirst, he had a look at his wound. It was caked over with blood and dirt. When washed off, the arm was seen to be inflamed and swollen around the bullet hole. He bathed it, experiencing a soothing relief in the cool water. Then he bandaged it as best he could and arranged a sling round his neck. This mitigated the pain of the injured member, and held it in a quiet and restful position, where it had a chance to begin mending. As Duane turned away from the river he felt refreshed. His great strength and endurance had always made fatigue something almost unknown to him. However, tramping on foot day and night was as unusual to him as to any other riders of the Southwest, and it had begun to tell on him. Retracing his steps... He reached the point where he had abruptly come upon the bluff, and here he determined to follow along its base in the other direction, until he found a way out, or discovered the futility of such effort. Duane covered ground rapidly. From time to time he paused to listen. But he was always listening, and his eyes were ever roving. This alertness had become second nature with him, so that except in extreme cases of caution he performed it while he pondered his gloomy and fateful situation such habit of alertness and thought made time fly swiftly by noon he had rounded the wide curve of the break and was facing south the bluff had petered out from a high mountainous wall to a low abutment of rock but it still held to its steep rough nature and afforded no crack or slope where quick ascent could have been possible He pushed on, growing warier as he approached the danger-zone, finding that as he neared the river on this side it was imperative to go deeper into the willows. In the afternoon he reached a point where he could see men pacing to and fro on the bluff. This assured him that whatever place was guarded was one by which he might escape. He headed toward these men and approached to within a hundred paces of the bluff where they were. There were several men and several boys, all armed, and, after the manner of Texans, taking their tasks leisurely. Farther down Duane made out black dots on the horizon of the bluff-line, and these, he concluded, were more guards stationed at another outlet. Probably all the available men in the district were on duty. Texans took a grim pleasure in such work. Duane remembered that upon several occasions he had served such duty himself. Duane peered through the branches and studied the lay of the land. For several hundred yards the bluff could be climbed. He took stock of those careless guards. They had rifles, and that made vain any attempt to pass them in daylight. He believed an attempt by night might be successful, and he was swiftly coming to a determination to hide there till dark and then try it, when the sudden yelping of a dog betrayed him to the guards on the bluff. The dog had likely been placed there to give an alarm, and he was lustily true to his trust. Duane saw the men run together, and begin to talk excitedly, and peer into the brake, which was a signal for him to slip away under the willows. He made no noise, and he assured himself he must be invisible. Nevertheless he heard shouts, then the cracking of rifles, and bullets began to zip and swish through the leafy covert. The day was hot and windless, and Duane concluded that whenever he touched a willow-stem, even ever so slightly, it vibrated to the top and sent a quiver among the leaves. Through this the guards had located his position. Once a bullet hissed by him. Another thudded into the ground before him. This shooting loosed a rage in Duane. He had to fly from these men, and he hated them, and himself because of it. Always, in the fury of such moments, he wanted to give back shot for shot. But he slipped on through the willows, and at length the rifles ceased to crack. He sheared to the left again in line with the rocky barrier, and kept on, wondering what the next mile would bring. It brought worse, for he was seen by sharp-eyed scouts, and a hot fusillade drove him to run for his life, luckily to escape with no more than a bullet-creased shoulder. Later that day, still undaunted, he sheered again toward the trap-wall, and found that the nearer he approached to the place where he had come down into the break, the greater his danger. To attempt to run the blockade of that trail by day would be fatal. He waited for night, and after the brightness of the fires had somewhat lessened, he essayed to creep out of the break. He succeeded in reaching the foot of the bluff, here only a bank, and had begun to crawl stealthily up under cover of a shadow, when a hound again betrayed his position. Retreating to the willows was as perilous a task as had ever confronted Duane, and when he had accomplished it, right under what seemed a hundred blazing rifles, he felt that he had indeed been favoured by Providence. This time men followed him a goodly ways into the break, and the ripping of lead through the willows sounded on all sides of him. When the noise of pursuit ceased, Duane sat down in the darkness. His mind clamped between two things. Whether to try again to escape, or wait for possible opportunity. He seemed incapable of decision. His intelligence told him that every hour lessened his chances for escape. He had little enough chance in any case, and that was what made another attempt so desperately hard. Still it was not love of life that bound him. There would come an hour, sooner or later, when he would wrench decision out of this chaos of emotion and thought. But that time was not yet. When he had remained quiet long enough to cool off and recover from his run, he found that he was tired. He stretched out to rest. But the swarms of vicious mosquitoes prevented sleep. This corner of the break was low and near the river, a breeding ground for the bloodsuckers. They sang and hummed and whined around him in an ever-increasing horde. He covered his head and hands with his coat, and lay there patiently. That was a long and wretched night. Morning found him still strong physically, but in a dreadful state of mind. First he hurried for the river. He could withstand the pangs of hunger, but it was imperative to quench thirst. His wound made him feverish and therefore more than usually hot and thirsty. Again he was refreshed. That morning he was hard put to it, to hold himself back from attempting to cross the river. If he could find a light log it was within the pounds of possibility that he might ford the shallow water in bars of quicksand. But not yet. Wearily, doggedly, he faced about toward the bluff. All that day and all that night. All the next day, and all the next night, he stole like a hunted savage from river to bluff, and every hour forced upon him the bitter certainty that he was trapped. Duane lost track of days, of events. He had come to an evil pass. There arrived an hour when, closely pressed by pursuers at the extreme southern corner of the break, he took to a dense thicket of willows, driven to what he believed was his last stand. If only these human bloodhounds would swiftly close in on him! Let him fight to the last bitter gasp and have it over! But these hunters, eager as they were to get him, had care of their own skins. They took few risks. They had him cornered. It was the middle of the day, hot, dusty, oppressive, threatening storm. Like a snake, Duane crawled into a little space in the darkest part of the thicket and lay still. Men had cut him off from the bluff, from the river, seemingly from all sides. But he heard voices only from in front and toward his left. Even if his passage to the river had not been blocked, it might just as well have been. "'Come on, fellows, down here!' called one man from the bluff. "'Got him corralled at last!' shouted another. "'Reckon ye needn't be too sure. We thought that more'n once taunted another. I seen him, I tell you. Aw, oh, that was a deer. But Bill found fresh tracks and blood on the willows. If he's winged we needn't hurry. Hold on, dar, you boys, came a shout in authoritative tones from farther up the bluff. Go slow. You all air gettin' foolish at the end of a long chase. That's right, Colonel, hold him back. There's nothing sure than somebody'll be stoppin' lead pretty quick. He'll be huntin' us soon. Let's surround this corner and starve him out. Fire the brake!" How clearly all this talk pierced Duane's ears. In it he seemed to hear his doom. This then was the end he had always expected, which had been close to him before, yet never like now. By God, whispered Duane. The thing for me to do now is go out, meet him. That was prompted by the fighting, the killing instinct in him. In that moment it had almost superhuman power. If he must die, that was the way for him to die. What else could be expected of Buck Duane? He got to his knees and drew his gun. With his swollen and almost useless hand he held what spare ammunition he had left. He ought to creep out noiselessly to the edge of the willows, suddenly face his pursuers, then, while there was a beat left in his heart, kill, kill, kill. These men all had rifles. The fight would be short. But the marksman did not live on earth who could make such a fight go wholly against him. Confronting them suddenly, he could kill a man for every shot in his gun. Thus Duane reasoned. So he hoped to accept his fate, to meet this end. But when he tried to step forward, something checked him. He forced himself. Yet he could not go. The obstruction that opposed his will was as insurmountable as it had been physically impossible for him to climb the bluff. Slowly he fell back, crouched low, and then lay flat. The grim and ghastly dignity that had been his a moment before fell away from him. He lay there stripped of his last shred of self-respect. He wondered, was he afraid? Had he, the last of the Duanes, had he come to feel fear? No. Never in all his wild life had he so longed to go out and meet men face to face. It was not fear that held him back. He hated this hiding, this eternal vigilance, this hopeless life. The damnable paradox of the situation was, That if he went out to meet these men there was absolutely no doubt of his doom if he clung to his covert there was a chance a merest chance for his life these pursuers dogged and unflagging as they had been were mortally afraid of him it was his fame that made them cowards duane's keenness told him that at the very darkest and most perilous moment there was still a chance for him and the blood in him the temper of his father The years of his outlawry, the pride of his unsought and hated career, the nameless, inexplicable something in him, made him accept that slim chance. Waiting then became a physical and mental agony. He lay under the burning sun, parched by thirst, laboring to breathe, sweating, and bleeding. His uncared-for wound was like a red-hot prong in his flesh, blotched and swollen from the never-ending attack of flies and mosquitoes, his face seemed twice its natural size, and it ached and stung. On one side, then, was this physical torture, on the other the old hell, terribly augmented at this crisis, in his mind. It seemed that thought and imagination had never been so swift. If death found him presently, how would it come? Would he get decent burial, or be left for the peccaries and the coyotes? Would his people ever know where he had fallen? How wretched, how miserable his state! It was cowardly, it was monstrous for him to cling longer to this doomed life. Then the hate in his heart, the hellish hate of these men on his trail, that was like a scourge. He felt no longer human. He had degenerated into an animal that could think his heart pounded, his pulse beat, his breast heaved, and this internal strife seemed to thunder into his ears. He was now enacting the tragedy of all crippled, starved, hunted wolves at bay in their dens. Only his tragedy was infinitely more terrible, because he had mind enough to see his plight, his resemblance to a lonely wolf, bloody-fanged, dripping, snarling, fire-eyed in a last instinctive defiance. Mounted upon the horror of Duane's thought was a watching, listening intensity so supreme that it registered impressions which were creations of his imagination. He heard stealthy steps that were not there. He saw shadowy moving figures that were only leaves. A hundred times when he was about to pull trigger he discovered his error. Yet voices came from a distance, and steps and crackings in the willows, and other sounds real enough. But Duane could not distinguish the real from the false. There were times when the wind which had arisen sent a hot, pattering breath down the Willow aisles, and Duane heard it as an approaching army. This straining of Duane's faculties brought on a reaction which in itself was a respite. He saw the sun darkened by thick, slow, spreading clouds. A storm appeared to be coming. How slowly it moved! The air was like steam. If there broke one of those dark, violent storms common though rare to the country, Duane believed he might slip away in the fury of wind and rain. Hope, that seemed unquenchable in him, resurged again. He hailed it with a bitterness that was sickening. Then at a rustling step he froze into the old, strained attention. He heard a slow patter of soft feet. A tawny shape crossed a little opening in the thicket. It was that of a dog. The moment while that beast came into full view was an age. The dog was not a bloodhound, and if he had a trail or a scent he seemed to be at fault on it. Duane waited for the inevitable discovery. Any kind of a hunting dog could have found him in that thicket. Voices from outside could be heard urging on the dog. Rover, they called him. Duane sat up at the moment the dog entered the little shaded covert. Duane expected a yelping, a baying, or at least a bark that would tell of his hiding-place. A strange relief swiftly swayed over Duane. The end was near now. He had no further choice. Let them come. A quick, fierce exchange of shots, and then this torture passed. He waited for the dog to give the alarm. But the dog looked at him, and trotted by into the thicket without a yelp. Duane could not believe the evidence of his senses. He thought he had suddenly gone deaf. He saw the dog disappear, heard him running to and fro among the willows, getting farther and farther away till all sound from him ceased. "'Thar's Rover!' called a voice from the bluff side. "'He's been through that black patch.' "'Nary a rabbit in there!' replied another. Bah, that pup's no good, scornfully growled another man. Put a hound at that clump o' willows. Fire's the game, burn the brake before the rain comes. The voices droned off as their owners evidently walked up the ridge. Then upon Duane fell the crushing burden of the old waiting, watching, listening spell. After all, it was not to end just now. His chance still persisted, looked a little brighter, led him on, perhaps, to forlorn hope. All at once twilight settled quickly down upon the willow-break, or else Duane noted it suddenly. He imagined it to be caused by the approaching storm. But there was little movement of air or cloud, and thunder still muttered and rumbled at a distance. The fact was, the sun had set, and at this time of overcast sky night was at hand. Duane realized it with the awakening of all his old force. He would yet elude his pursuers. That was the moment when he seized the significance of all these fortunate circumstances which had aided him. Without haste and without sound he began to crawl in the direction of the river. It was not far, and he reached the bank before darkness set in. There were men up on the bluff carrying wood to build a bonfire for a moment he half yielded to a temptation to try to slip along the river shore, close in under the willows. But when he raised himself to peer out, he saw that an attempt of this kind would be liable to failure. At the same moment he saw a rough-hewn plank lying beneath him, lodged against some willows. The end of the plank extended almost to a point beneath him. Quick as a flash he saw where a desperate chance invited him. Then he tied his gun in an oilskin bag and put it in his pocket. The bank was steep and crumbly. He must not break off any earth to splash into the water. There was a willow growing back some few feet from the edge of the bank. Cautiously he pulled it down, bent it over the water so that when he released it there would be no springing back. Then he trusted his weight to it, with his feet sliding carefully down the bank. He went into the water almost up to his knees, felt the quicksand grip his feet. Then, leaning forward till he reached the plank, he pulled it toward him and lay upon it. Without a sound one end went slowly under water and the farther end appeared lightly braced against the overhanging willows. Very carefully, then, Duane began to extricate his right foot from the sucking sand. It seemed as if his foot was encased in solid rock. But there was a movement upward, and he pulled with all the power he dared use. It came slowly, and at length was free. The left one he released with less difficulty. The next few moments he put all his attention on the plank to ascertain if his weight would sink it into the sand. The far end slipped off the willows with a little splash, and gradually settled to rest upon the bottom but it sank no farther, and Duane's greatest concern was relieved. However, as it was manifestly impossible for him to keep his head up for long, he carefully crawled out upon the plank until he could rest an arm and shoulder upon the willows. When he looked up, it was to find the night strangely luminous with fires. There was a bonfire on the extreme end of the bluff, another a hundred paces beyond. A great flare extended over the break in that direction. Duane heard a roaring on the wind, and he knew his pursuers had fired the willows. He did not believe that would help them much. The break was dry enough, but too green to burn readily. And as for the bonfires, he discovered that the men, probably having run out of wood, were keeping up the light with oil and stuff from the village. A dozen men kept watch on the bluff scarcely fifty paces from where Duane lay concealed by the willows. They talked, cracked jokes, sang songs, and manifestly considered this outlaw hunting a great lark. As long as the bright light lasted, Duane dared not move. He had the patience and the endurance to wait for the breaking of the storm, and if that did not come, then the early hour before dawn when the gray fog and gloom were over the river escape was now in his grasp. He felt it, and with that in his mind he waited, strong as steel in his conviction, capable of withstanding any strain endurable by the human frame. The wind blew in puffs, grew wilder, and roared through the willows, carrying bright sparks upward. Thunder rolled down over the river, and lightning began to flash. Then the rain fell in heavy sheets, but not steadily. The flashes of lightning and the broad flares played so incessantly that Duane could not trust himself out on the open river. Certainly the storm rather increased the watchfulness of the men on the bluff. He knew how to wait. And he waited, grimly standing, pain and cramp and chill. The storm wore away as desultorily as it had come, and the long night set in. There were times when Duane thought he was paralyzed others when he grew sick, giddy, weak from the strained posture. The first paling of the stars quickened him with a kind of wild joy. He watched them grow paler, dimmer, disappear one by one. A shadow hovered down, rested upon the river, and gradually thickened. The bonfire on the bluff showed as through a foggy veil. The watchers were mere groping dark figures. Duane, aware of how cramped he had become from long inaction, began to move his legs and uninjured arm and body, and at length overcame a paralyzing stiffness. Then, digging his hand in the sand and holding the plank with his knees, he edged it out into the river. Inch by inch he advanced until clear of the willows. Looking upward, he saw the shadowy figures of the men on the bluff. He realized they ought to see him feared that they would. But he kept on, cautiously, noiselessly, with a heart-numbing slowness. From time to time his elbow made a little gurgle and splash in the water. Try as he might, he could not prevent this. It got to be like the hollow roar of a rapid filling his ears with mocking sound. There was a perceptible current out in the river, and it hindered straight advancement. Inch by inch he crept on, expecting to hear the bang of rifles, the spattering of bullets. He tried not to look backward, but failed. The fire appeared a little dimmer, the moving shadows a little darker. Once the plank stuck in the sand and felt as if it were settling. Bringing feet to aid his hand, he shoved it over the treacherous place. This way he made faster progress. The obscurity of the river seemed to be enveloping him when he looked back again the figures of the men were coalescing with the surrounding gloom. The fires were streaky, blurred patches of light. But the sky above was brighter. Dawn was not far off. To the west all was dark. With infinite care and implacable spirit, and waning strength, Duane shoved the plank along, and when at last he discerned the black border of bank, it came in time, he thought, to save him. He crawled out, rested till the gray dawn broke, and then headed north through the willows. End of chapter.